This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, December 11th, 2016, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, If you're new here, my name is Sam. Normally, we're going through Genesis. We're going to take just a break today, um, and we're going to be in Romans 16. So if you'd open your Bibles there. Uh, it's a strange passage, and you'll have to stick with me to know why we're there. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and 16 is the last chapter in the book of Romans. I'm going to read uh, a few verses, beginning in verse 3, uh, and then go uh, to about 16 and see what God has to say to us. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who is the first convert in Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelitus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stigus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ, and greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the ward, Tryphonea and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen the Lord, also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Ocritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and our sister, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. This is God's word, and you're wondering, what are you going to get from that? We'll return to that shortly. This past week, as many of you know, some of you may not, we had a member of our church family graduate to heaven. His name was Sean Wright. And in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul reminds us, it's an important reminder, that in death, we who are in Christ do not grieve as others who do not have hope. As we grieve, Christians are able to hope because of one basic truth. We believe in the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That death was and has been conquered, and Sean is right now dwelling in the presence of our Lord in all glory. Now, despite that truth, we grieve and we feel the loss deeply, not merely because Sean was a good friend, but because he was a brother in the family of God, both invisible and visible here at Restoration Road Church. And so in light of our loss and his gain, so let's forget that, I thought it appropriate to spend some time talking about the family of God. Now, any loss is difficult, but I think that as we consider the losses in our own life in this very present one, it seems like the holidays seem to make family losses that much worse. 
Holidays are times where you remember. Holidays are times when the family gets together, for better or worse. We look forward to holidays because of our family traditions, of our family stories, and just our overall family weirdness that comes out. Families know each other's names, and families know each other's histories and stories, and Family appreciates one another's quirks, and family rejoices and weeps with one another, and family helps when others cannot, and family forgives when others will not. Family puts up with one another, and family cheerleads for one another, and family both understands and hurts one another in ways that no one can't. But family also speaks the hard truths and shows the radical graces that others won't. Families eat together and families work together and families grow together and families cry together. But I think maybe one of the greatest things, as C.S. Lewis aptly said, the sun looks down on nothing half so good as a household laughing together over a meal. That's family. And... The family is designed by God to be our first and best place of learning. The family is is where we learn the important truths of life, either through instruction or example or just the stuff dad says. Family is where it's safe to screw up as we grow up. It's where we first learn to live. I think it's noteworthy that God uses the family as a model for His church. That we are called to live as family is very clear in Scripture. We are encouraged, and we sung it this morning, to call God our Father. To view Jesus as our Lord and Savior, yes, but also our brother. And to consider each other as different adopted children in the one family of God. In his letters to young pastors, Timothy and Titus, Paul instructs them to relate to older men like fathers, to older women like mothers, to younger men like brothers, and younger women like sisters. These are not merely instructions for a specific church in a specific time, but truths that accord with sound doctrine for the church of every time, including us. Failure to live like family, whatever that might mean exactly, and we won't fully explore that this morning, but know that our failure to do that is not just unloving, it's it's unbiblical. And whatever makes us unbiblical makes us unsafe. Because in time, it will ruin us, or something we love. But despite the truth that God calls us to live as family, there's an ongoing debate about the need for the church in our Christian lives. And I think that's because we don't really understand the nature of the church and the unique kinds of relationships that it alone offers us in Christ. So I want to explain that a little bit and explore that and revisit Romans 16 in a few minutes. Why do we need family? 
it's important to understand that our Creator is by nature um, familial, and that we are made in His image. By nature, God exists in a relationship with Himself, which sounds kind of weird. But Christianity is a unique religion that has God as Trinitarian. He's a Trinity. Scripture teaches that, that God existed as one tri-personal being in perfect eternal communion as the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. There is one being, but they are three co-equal, co-existing persons who each think and feel and speak and act. And our Creator is not, not three gods. And He's not some schizophrenic old man who talks to his imaginary friends. It is difficult. It's paradoxical. And we accept it not because we perfectly comprehend it, but because the Bible is our authority and it teaches it. We don't let our intellect, our emotion govern who we think God is. His Word does that. It can be said then that God is love, which the Bible does said, because He exists as a loving community in a sense, as a family, before He created anything. He didn't create so that He could learn to love or have someone to love. He already had perfect love in and of Himself. And so as people though made in God's image, the one thing God said as He created the world that was not good Remember, he created the world like, this is great, this is good, this is good, this is good. And the one thing that he said was not good before sin made everything bad was that man was alone. God intended man to exist in relationship with others just as he does. Individuals in community. Individuals in family, not individuals in isolation, was God's design before sin entered the world. And in the garden, God raised up all kinds of creatures. It's not good for man to be alone. He starts raising up these creatures, right? And bringing them to Him to find a suitable helper. All kinds of beasts and birds were brought to Him, but none were found to be able to satisfy His deep loneliness it's important to understand that loneliness is not sinful. It's just simply not good. And it's incomplete. And so God raises up a computer. No, an iPhone. No. A person. Another person. But when sin entered the world, those relationships were destroyed and they became hard. And they were plunged back into isolation as our natural tendency. This time it was only not good, it was rooted in sin and it was deadly. And if you look around, we live in a world that is terribly lonely, terribly full of guilt and shame and pain, hiding from one another in the same way that our first parents hid from one another. You have more than any time people living alone, people driving alone, people sleeping alone, people having sex alone, people working alone. People sitting at home alone, watching Facebook like voyeurs alone, suffering alone, all because, I believe, we're fearful of having the real kinds of relationships God intended for us to have. Now, 
I'm not going to argue that the church is the only place where we should have relationship, because that's just not true. But I do believe it is the one place we must have relationship. Perhaps this is why the New Testament Scriptures warns us to not neglect a few things, and it's only a few using that word. And one of the things in Hebrews 10 is don't neglect the gathering. And that's not just this, but it is this. Gathering together with the family of God. Don't neglect that. We're made for relationship. We're designed to be in family. The question is, how is this any different than any other family? We need these relationships to be reminded of a God's love and to be stirred up to love and to good works. In many ways, as we sing, sometimes I'm not able to, or you might not be able to, but I need someone else to sing for me, to sing over me, to sing loud enough to remind me of what is true, what is right, and what is good. To the family of God gathered as the local church is a gift of the loving Father for our good and for His glory as much as salvation itself. I don't think we view it that way naturally. It should come to no surprise to us if that is true, that active involvement and participation in the church is often the first thing passively abandoned by some and aggressively attacked by others. If it's really that gift, if it's really that important, it makes sense that's one of the first things people say, I don't need the church. See, just as men and women exchange the truth of God for a lie, we exchange the family of God for a community in the world. We look to the world to find what God has designed primarily to be found in the church, whether it be encouragement, admonishment, or help. We seek a community made in our image. And I say we as in the large majority of mankind and I would say also some believers. We're seeking a community made in our image, one that will affirm every one of my desires and that will agree with my preferences and will satisfy my needs, my way, and never, ever ask me to change who I am. That's not the family of God. See, the family of God offers the kinds of relationships that I believe cannot be found anywhere else, though we try. Let me tell you five ways that the relationships in the family of God, the local church, and we could talk about the invisible church and the church all across the generations and in different places, just talking about us, how they're different. How they're special. First, the family relationships in the local church are what I'll call gospel relationships. And what does that mean? We're a family not necessarily because we chose to be. But because when Jesus saved us to himself, he also saved us to a people. We're not brought together by ethnicity. We're not brought together by personality. We're not brought together by affinity. We're not even brought together by cause. Our shared identity is as sinners 
saved through gracious adoption. That is what we share. You're a sinner? So am I! Saved through the grace of God. So before we're husbands and wives, before we're mothers and fathers, before we're white, black, red, yellow, whatever color, before we are friends, before we're co-workers, before we're employees or employers, before we are vegetarians or meat eaters, before we're Republicans or Democrats, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. First, before we are anything based on where we came from, what we've experienced, what we know, what we've done or not done, we are something based on who we believe Jesus is and what we believe He has done. That's what binds us together. We are, as Ephesians 2.19 says, no longer strangers and aliens. We are fellow citizens and saints, members of the household of God. Notice it didn't say we're no longer strange. (laughs) Which leads me to my second point. Not only are they gospel relationships, but family relationships in the local church are complementary relationships. Complementary. Now, we're a family that is wonderfully different. I don't mean different from other families, though that is true. I mean different from one another. We have different personalities. We have different preferences. We have different gifts. We have different dreams. We're different. Many of us would not be friends if it weren't for Christ. Because we only like to hang out with people that are like us. But we're different. Beautifully so. Wonderfully so. But we are different members of one family. I have five kids. And the only similarity between them is they have the last name Ford. They're very different. They think different. They talk. Well, they're all loud. There's another common thread. But they like different things. They eat different things. They receive punishment differently. They receive encouragement differently. They are better or worse at different. They're different, but we're all family. I can't imagine a family of all similar, same everything. Although it might be gloriously peaceful. (laughs) It would not be as near as enjoyable. 1 Corinthians 12 speaks about many things, but one of my favorite parts of chapter 12, it speaks about the body of Christ, verses 18 to 20. It says, as it is, God arranged the members in the body. God puts us where we're supposed to be. Each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. You see, and I won't generalize, I understand that. It seems like most of the world's communities are built around affinity. And that's not a horrible thing. 
But largely, the, the most meaningful communities outside of the church that we find ourselves in is where we like the same things, and we do the same things, and we wear the same things, and we eat the same things. But the church is unique. We're supposed to be. It's supposed to be complementary. Not only does God bring together a group of people that are as different as eyes and hands. Now, you can't get much more different than an eye and a hand. And if I have to explain that to you, we've got a lot more to learn, right? An eyeball and a hand. He brings all these parts together that are as different as that, not just to hang out, to complement one another and work together. I mean, imagine a hand without a forearm. Doesn't work real well, right? You kind of need that piece to work together, to complement one another, therefore to embrace how uniquely different and even disagreeable we are with one another because we're one family. I hate to say it, but I will. As the famous Jerry Maguire said, in many ways, right, you complete me. I don't relate to the church. I don't participate in church. I don't engage in the church because I have to. I actually need to. In the same way that the eyeball is needed by the hand. And the rest of the body, the torso, need the legs. And the arms. All these things, right? I need to. We could view family like that. That, man, I am incomplete if I am not part of that. It's hard for me to imagine with my five children, one absent. Like whenever we have like multiple absent, there's like two kids, it's creepy. Kind of look at each other like, first it's really quiet. But secondly, like this is weird. Like there's something, something's missing. And as much as you might not think about this, I do constantly, and it's gotten better over the years, but I know when you're not here largely. I may not know everyone perfectly. I don't know everything about you, but I, I, I recognize largely, if I go home and Kaylin said, how was church? I could probably tell people who was gone. Because there's holes. Not because, wow, there was only this number of people. It's like, I noticed this person's not here because they're part of the body. We're complementary. Third, and this is the hard one. This is the one you're all going to like. You're all going to affirm, like, mm, yes, that's true. Praise Jesus. And then you're not going to actually listen to it. So please don't do that. Family relationships are unique in the local church because they are sanctifying relationships. We are a family that is changing and maturing and growing up together. Though we don't want to admit our immaturities, we have been brought together to grow up. And as much as maturation is an individualized renovation process, biblically it's one that takes place together. See, the family of the local church is God's chosen tool to bring us to mature manhood, to the fullness of Christ, to build us up in love, according to Ephesians 4. Think about this, like you go, what, what does it mean to be built up in love, right? Whenever we think of love, what verses will I turn to 
to understand what love is, right? Go to a wedding. What are they going to turn to? 1 Corinthians 13, right? Okay, let's just change that verse a little bit. Let's put the word family in there. Since Ephesians 4 says we're being built up in love, and this is what a definition of love is, let's see what we're growing up to be. What's, what are we learning? What are we becoming? 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Family is patient and kind. Family does not envy or boast. Family is not arrogant or rude. Family does not insist on its own way. Family is not irritable or resentful. Family doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but family rejoices with the truth. And family bears all things and believes all things. Family hopes all things and family endures all things. That's what we're growing up into. We're learning to endure. We're learning to be patient. We're learning not to be arrogant. We're learning not to insist on our own way. Where do we learn those things? Family. You know where my kids are learning to serve? In our family. There are seven people here, kids. You all can't sit on your bottoms and just do what you want. We're in this together. Growing together. Learning together. Making mistakes together. The family of Christ is where we learn to live like Christ. Where we learn to love like Christ. Family is where we learn to deal with resentment. Where we learn to endure all things. And where we are given the permission to make mistakes. And ask forgiveness and grow. See, Jesus loved us enough not to leave us where we were at. And that's what it means to have a sanctifying relationship. The family of God doesn't just simply love. I just know you guys are just loving. You just love, 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 love. Love always. And that is in some sense true. But the family of God loves us enough to help us change. We don't come to church and gather with our family, if you will, looking solely for contentment and comfort. We come to be uncomfortably confronted at times and changed through the gracious words and actions of others. We're here to be changed, peeps. We are here to be changed, to grow up. Maybe you don't need help growing up. I do. And I pray you will lovingly help me do that. Fourth, family relationships in the local church are glorifying relationships that sounds really big. What do I mean by glorifying? Well, when we talk about glorifying God, we're making much of God. We're displaying the greatness and majesty of His awesomeness. The family of God exists without doubt to edify and sanctify the believer, but it is to glorify God as you do in the world. When the family of God lives out the kind of community that He has built us for, it is the most powerful evangelistic tool we have. Although equally important, I do believe that loving one another is more powerful than going on a mission trip or feeding the homeless in terms of proclaiming the glory of God. We must never forget that Jesus didn't only 
teach us by His words. He taught us by His example. What should characterize His people? Those who say, I follow Jesus. Not just those who say, I'm a Christian. John 13. What an awesome passage. The Son of God, right? God in human flesh on the evening of His future arrest and then crucifixion the next day. He gets Himself down and dirty and the Creator of all things, according to Colossians 1, the Son of God washes the feet of His creation, including a man who's going to betray Him. And in John 13, He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are My disciples if you have love for one another. Without doubt, I hope that people, when they gather with us, they feel loved, that you feel invited, that you feel embraced, that you feel welcomed. But more than anything, I would love for us to be characterized like Jesus says, that man, those people love one another. And they just love one another like crazy love. It's great to bless the community, but I'm telling you the best blessing you can be to the community is to love one another. That said, we must be very careful in judging how our brothers and sisters love us. It is glorifying and easy to love when our family loves us well. It is also glorifying to God, though, to love well, even when our family does not. It's about glorifying God. It's not about what I'm getting or what I'm giving. Bottom line, the more we love like Jesus, despite what anyone else does, so know that it's very anti-gospel to go, well, I would be loving to the family, but they're not loving to me. Is that the gospel? From what I understand, the gospel is that Jesus loved us when we were unlovable. Jesus didn't wait for us to become loving. He didn't wait for us to earn enough credit of love for him to love us. He loved us when we were unlovable, and that transformed us. Can you imagine a church committed to that? That we will love one another? I don't, I don't, I don't care what anyone else does. I'm going to love. And if everyone committed to that, holy love fest, right? <laughs> to the glory of God. Lastly, family relationships, this is so awesome. Family relationships in the church are eternal relationships. More than anything, the relationships with the local family of God last forever. See, many of the relationships in the world, they don't last past a school year or a soccer season or a life stage. So I've said it before and I'll say it again. There will be many Christians in heaven, millions upon millions. But we will know one another in a way that we don't know others. We are building and preparing to enjoy eternity together in the presence of our King. That means what we do now in relationship with one another has eternal significance. 
John 14, Jesus reminds his disciples as he's telling them, I'm leaving. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be, and we will be there together. We are preparing now for relationships then. Which brings me back to Romans 16. And the death of our dear brother. You see, at the close of of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, he writes this, this lengthy list that's a personal greeting of a core of local believers. There's over 30, and you could argue more. And his words are intimate, right? They don't read like the words of a theologian. They don't read even like the words of a pastor. They sound like the words of an older brother. And he thanks some for their service and their hard work. And he greets some as fellow workers and others as friends. And if you read carefully, he greets individuals and he greets siblings and he greets entire families. And then he warmly describes a few as beloved, a few as kinsmen. And his close relationship is no more evident than in verse 13 where Paul greets a man named Rufus who was the son, likely, of Simon of Cyrene, the guy who carried Jesus' cross. And so the person he's thanking, the mother of Rusus, is most likely Simon's wife. And he expresses great appreciation for his mom because she was a mother to him. So he's not just writing to a church in Rome. He is a Christian writing to his family in Rome. And there are many reasons to love this passage. First, there are specific names. It's not general, it's very specific. See, Paul didn't see the church as just people, as just nickels and noses. It was about real people with real names and real stories of which many he knew, you can tell. Names. I remember being in a Bible study once at Damascus Road. There was about 25 guys in it. And probably two-thirds of the way through the study, I stopped. And I just started listing names. I said, John, Tim, Bob. And I named all the names. And I said, how many of you guys could have done that? Well, I was struck by the fact of how we've been doing Bible study together for seven weeks, and no one even knew each other's name. I love that Paul knows names. But the second thing, he, he recognizes that individuals are identified uniquely. He doesn't just list, hey, thank all these people for all they did. He's like, this guy was a kinsman. This guy was a brother. This guy was a fellow worker. This, this woman was a mother to me. Each one was special in some way. Just as each individual part of us is special in some way, we're not the same. Not everyone's Rufus's mom. Surprise. But thirdly, it's clear that they lived as family to the extent where Paul says at the end, greet one another with a holy kiss, which is weird to us. But this was a very traditional family expression, right? In the Middle East, they come in, oh, welcome, and 
what Paul is doing is saying, take this family expression of endearment and adopt it in the church. And it's not literally, go kiss everybody. He's like, treat them like family. As John Piper said, it'd be like saying, you know, fist bump with a holy fist bump. Right? It's like, well, we're not going to really all fist bump. But what he's saying, like, yeah, we're brothers. We're something different. It's unique. We're not just gathering together like we would at a soccer field. So it's my hope and my prayer that through our life in the family of Restoration Road Church, we might all be able to write a greeting like that. That question is, and it sounds bad like it's some kind of scorekeeper, but would you be on the family list? Do you know and are you known enough to write your own? Is your presence or your absence felt? See, it's not our goal to make every list. I've got to make the list that everyone knows me but it should be our attention to know the family here well enough that some make ours. Sean made many of our lists. This is a card that's downstairs, and it's just in memory of Sean, and it lists his Facebook uh, status. I think it's like, instead of his occupation, which he worked at Boeing, here's what he wrote. Sunday school enforcer, kindergarten cop, giant pushover. <laughs> right? That's what Sean would be on my list. We grieve for our brother because we knew him. And we loved him and we enjoyed him like family. And God brought Sean to his church, this church, though he was a stranger when he showed up. But he took the risk of making himself known and as a result became family. And we know his name. And without doubt, he was unique. He could barely stay awake. He was usually sit right over there, try to sleep through. He's very faithful. He could keep, keep awake. But he served our kids faithfully. And they loved him. And we now see a Sean-shaped hole. And that's what I want for all of us. That if you were gone tomorrow, there is a hole shaped like you that we go, whoa. Not, why isn't that task being done? No. Where's Sean? Who happened to be the guy that loved our kids on Sunday morning? See, the longer Sean lived like family, the more we saw him change. And the more he became alive. And the more loving he became. And the more God was glorified because of it. And the family of God changed Sean because Sean's participation changed our family. And I look forward to an awesome reunion in heaven with him. But I would encourage you as we close to look around. Because through Christ, God has called you together in this place. And He has called us together to grow up together 
and to be built up in love as the family of God. My favorite Christmas movie is It's a Wonderful Life. I could watch it a thousand times, and I will cry at the end every single time. It's a picture of what I really genuinely hope for everyone, that if you were gone tomorrow, you'd not merely be missed, but you'd be felt. I'll always love the end of the film where the main character, George Bailey, is saved by the many people that he touched over the years. They were all part of one story. They were all part of one family because they had invested in each other's lives. And so I would encourage you that, yes, attending in obscurity is low risk and it's also very low reward. But investing in the lives of others, though it's risky, and you might experience the pain of loss, like if you're not invested in this church and, and you never got to know Sean, then like, okay, well, that's sad. Because when you get deeper into family, loss feels more. And you also, when you get deeper into family, see that like, well, actually, that's not as perfect as I thought. We're pretty screwed up and there's that pain of disillusionment. Wow, you guys really make mistakes too. Yep. But choosing to love as the family of God, it's never easy, it's never perfect, it's never clean, but it's always edifying, it's always sanctifying, and I pray it's always glorifying. The church is not, don't hear me, the only place we should have relationships, but it's the one place that we must. We're going to close with communion, and I would remind you what communion is, because sometimes we forget I was asked the other day, what does communion mean? Why is it so important to take it every Sunday? And I would say it's important for three reasons, and one will emphasize. This is a sacrament that Jesus gave us on the night that he would be betrayed and arrested and then killed. Marking the new covenant that our relationship has been restored through Christ's blood. That his blood was shed for us and we are more sinful than ever admit, but because he went to the cross for us, we are clearly more loved than we could possibly imagine. And it's remembering that we are saved not based on anything we've done, but what Jesus has done for us. So it reminds us that we have a new life in Christ, but it also reminds us because we get dirty during the week that we have a renewed life and we need to be reminded of that every week. I have this new life, but man, I feel like I've fallen on my face. Well, don't worry, Jesus already knew you were going to because he died knowing all of your sin, past, present, and future. So we reminded that, yeah, new life and a renewed life, but here's what it is. It's a shared table. It's a shared life we have. A shared life that is preparing for us to have eternal life with the Father and with one another. So as you take communion together, remember you're taking it with your brothers and sisters of Christ in this place, in this time, this little corner of the Northwest in the United States of America and the state of Washington, a little city of Snohomish, and this building that used to be a livery for horses. God has put you here. And my pray, my prayer is that you will know one another as family, will live together as family, and we will learn to love and endure and believe all things and hope all things as family. Let's pray.